This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to the Skeptical Skeptics Podcast. I'm RJ Metzger. And I'm Rachel Metzger. And this is episode 68, two away from a special that we have yet to figure out what we're going to do. That's going to be a good one. Get there when we get there. Yeah, we have several options. Um, We're excited for that. We have like nothing else interesting happening either. It's just going to be the special in two weeks. Anyway, um, you got anything to talk about going on in your life? No. Nothing at all? No. I I don't have anything either. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, in the news... We've got Skinwalker Ranch season two is coming out uh, tonight, actually, uh, which is only Tuesday because we're recording this hours before it's supposed to go out because we're (laughs) the worst. So um, pretty much when you hear this, uh, well, May 4th, whatever, May the 4th be with you um, is when it's coming out. And there uh, was an interview between our boy George Knapp and Brandon Fugel, the owner of Skinwalker Ranch, the new one who took over for... uh, Bigelow. And uh, here's an excerpt from the interview. I mean, it was a pretty long interview and pretty interesting if you're interested in Skinwalker Ranch, but I figured I would read this quote. So this is Brandon Fugel um, answering him uh, just in regards to like what he thinks is the cause of the phenomena. Okay, so a little bit of background. If you haven't watched Skinwalker Ranch on History Channel, it's actually pretty good. Obviously, it has the same hokey History Channel crap like always where they overplay some stuff, but the legitimate evidence that they're catching is interesting. Like, and it's... uh, to Brandon Fugel's point in this interview, it's like, you know, he told them like, Hey, I owned the ranch for six months before anything even happened. Right. Like you don't, you're not necessarily going to catch anything. Right. Um, but then that also goes along with, but you know, he knows every time that they bring new people to the ranch, like stuff happens, like it gets reactive to people. So he was like, there's a chance that it's going to be heightened. Right. And he said, luckily it felt kind of more on the heightened side. Um, but anyway, um, it's a good show. I think you should check it out. Like I said, ignore the the weird <clears throat> random overacting um, and really just pay attention to what they catch. Because like this is one of the like so and to Fugel's point, like he's he's a millionaire, right? Maybe even a billionaire. I don't know, but he's super rich. And uh, he has spent so much money on this. Like he so he's built a weather station. He's put seismographers out there. Um, It's under video surveillance 24 seven. He has a full time staff. He has staff that live on the ranch just to catch stuff. Um, He has an anthropologist out there. He has biologists out there. He has um, Geiger counters, everything. Right. Wow. They've caught everything from moving radiation to uh, a bunch of UFOs, like constant UFOs, lights emanating from the ground, shooting upwards. Um, A ton of stuff. And this is on the show. Right. Yeah. Um, And so, like, like I said, he's just devoted, like dumped money, like just piles of money into just figuring out what, which is what Bigelow was doing before. Right. Um, But now, you know, he's televising it, which is really cool. So anyway, he says, uh, so the question was essentially, you know, do you know or do you have an, a suspicion on what it is that's causing this at the ranch? Right. He says, yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time on a daily basis. Do you believe that it's visitors from other worlds or other dimensions of reality or spiritual phenomena? My honest answer is yes. I believe that what we're seeing is really evidence of all of the above. And there may be a chance that it's all interconnected in some way that we have yet to really understand. I mean, right now, I think for the first time ever, we're documenting the phenomena in a really powerful and compelling way. You know, the evidence that we've been gathering, everything from videographics to photographic correlated with electromagnetic anomalies, acute medical episodes. I mean, 
When you add up all the correlating evidence and data that we have been gathering and carefully cataloging service to this effort, I challenge anyone to come up with a comparable effort or anything that even comes close to what we've been accomplishing out at Skinwalker Ranch. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that as a proud father to a degree, whatever, whatever. Um, the reason why I thought that quote was interesting was just in the sense that uh, I do think that he's cataloging stuff at a level that no one else has. Let me caveat that while being open to the public, yeah, <laughs> you know, because Skinwalker Ranch was in the control of the government for a long time right? where they did very similar efforts. But I mean, he's like I said, he's doing the same thing, but is open to the public and it's, it's very different. Um, and so I do think that it's really interesting that despite all the evidence and all the various styles of things, they aren't even close to narrowing it down to one thing, which is that's the thing of Skinwalker Ranch, right? For over 100 years, it's been a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, poltergeists, skinwalkers. Um, and I think that's interesting that it still hasn't been narrowed down, right? Uh, then here's a quick follow up. So George Knapp says, have you asked yourself maybe late at night when you're alone? Is this a solvable mystery? I mean, you've been documenting phenomena and you might go 10 years documenting more. Ultimately, we may never know what the answer is. Fugues and Fugel says, uh, sure, but I'm convinced that this is truly the greatest science project of our time. The opportunity to prove that we're not alone in the universe, whether that whether that be that we're part of, mul- of multi-dimensional reality, we're dealing with interdimensional phenomena or that the veil is thin to other dimensions or worlds, whether that be a portal or wormhole that may exist on the property. I think we're documenting hard evidence that may truly be at work here. I find that all very inspiring and it continues to drive the investigation. Well, I just thought that was cool. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. So check out season two. If you haven't seen season one, check it out. Um, like I said, it's a pretty good show. So, um, yeah. Skinwalker Ranch. I think we should redo Skinwalker Ranch at some oh, point. I can't. I, I can't do it again. <laughs> like um, bring back bad memories. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are you talking about this week? I am talking about how do you how do you say that word? The Velissa. The Velissa axe murders. Yeah. And I'm talking about something a little out of left field for us. We actually haven't done it since uh, it wasn't even us. It was uh, uh, Mike and Mark whenever they did sports conspiracies. It's <laughs> the yeah. last time we did because it's going to be a sports conspiracy. So I'm so excited. You're going to like it. We'll see. Chill. In game one of the Easter conference, Eastern Conference semifinals between the Wizards and Celtics. What, no, I'm already what, gone. <laughs> what sport am I talking about? That's the Wizards ask. and Celtics? Yes. I, I'm not guessing. I don't, you know, I don't like guessing. Come on, you know this. The Boston Celtics. I have a gut feeling that yes. the Celtics are basketball. Yes. Okay. Good job. Um, so anyway, in game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, which is like the game right before, or no, this is the semifinals. So it's in the playoffs, um, two games before you go to the finals, right? So essentially you're you're in a tournament, okay? Okay. Um, Markeith Morris went down and stayed down after Al Horford's foot undercut him on a shot attempt. So in other words, he was coming down from a shot and landed on this other dude's foot, which almost always results in an ankle sprain. Right. Okay. Um, especially for these tall, lanky dudes. Um, but then two nights later on Tuesday night, Morris played the best game of the playoffs and uh, or his best game of the playoffs, hitting his first four field goal attempts and finishing with 16 points, six rebounds and some pretty assists and showed no signs of injury. OK, um, now, perhaps Markeith just made an amazing recovery or perhaps it was Markeith's identical twin brother, Marcus, who plays for the Detroit Pistons, who were already mm. eliminated from the playoffs, dressed up as Markeith. OK, which one, though? Huh? Which one do they think was the twin brother? 
the not they so they think the injured one went down and then they switch uh, because so that he could still play. Yeah, because the other one was already his team was already eliminated. Yeah, right. So he was sitting at home doing nothing. Okay. So, um, by the way, I'm getting this from The Ringer, and I am reading parts of it verbatim just because it was well, well written. It's a comedy style of delivery for sports, so I thought it'd be good. Um, but anyway, so that's where I'm getting it from. So there are two types of identical twins. First, there are those that don't appreciate the constant comparison to the person that shares their physical appearance and forge unique identities uh, like Brooke Lopez. OK, you, you don't know this because of sports, but this one's pretty funny, even though you don't know. Sorry, but the other sports fans, I'll get this one or Tiki Barber playing running back and hit, repeatedly dissing his teammates, leaving his pregnant wife for a younger woman in comparison, comparing their clandestine relationship to Anne Frank hiding from the Nazis and Rondé Barber playing defensive back and um, not making offensive comparisons. Um, so Tiki Barber is a total uh, douche, okay, and has been for forever. Yeah. Uh, and his twin brother Rondé just like was always quiet and chill <laughs> and easy to deal with. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, then there are the identical twins who make sure they do literally everything their sibling does, like the Bryan brothers, who became the greatest doubles tennis partners of all time, formed a band together, married women who look the same, and discuss their investments while working out together. Uh, the Morris twins are definitely in that latter camp. They went to Kansas together, signed a package deal in Phoenix, and famously lived together and uh, shared a mutual bank account. Their mom speculated that when they got married, they would live in the same house with their wives. And in 2015, that strategy backfired when Markeef, um agreed to a deal well below his market value to stay with his brother, only to look stupid when the sons traded Marcus to the Pistons. So they were going to be apart anyway. Yeah. Um, they rarely had the same opportunity to sub in for each other. Because either they were on the same team or always played at the same time. They're talking about sub in like as in switch yeah, right. jerseys. Um, but I suppose they could have pulled a parent trap and just have been in different places pretending to be each other. Um, but that wouldn't really be particularly useful with the Pistons uh, done for the season and Markeith hurt. They had the perfect opportunity to take advantage of their twindom. And is it possible that they did? So point they admit to have done, have having done this before. When I the mean, twins, if I was an identical twin, of course I would. Of course, there's right? no way I. Yeah. Oh, if, get, the plot thickens. If okay. there are identical twins who have never done it, like in in your listening, let us know because yeah. that blows my mind. Um, when the twins were on the Suns and Markeith got suspended for a game, a reporter asked Markeith about the prospect of playing in Marcus's jersey. He said it's worked in the past. "Quote: We did it before in AAU ball." Markeith admitted in 2013, it, uh, talking about the jersey switch, uh, the jersey was on the bench. Uh, it happened real quick. He had hurt his ankle, but I had fouled out, and I gave them a little limp back in like I was hurt, and I just kept playing. So they've done it before, right? Okay. One player was hurt. The other one was ineligible. So in basketball, when you foul six times, you get kicked out of the game, yeah. right? So the ineligible one just pretended to be hurt and the hurt one sat, right? right? Yeah. Uh, fast forward to 2017 when Marcus is ineligible to play and Markeith is hurt. The only thing missing was a fake limp. Counterpoint. People say they can tell them apart. People who know the Morrises claim they can identify them. Auntie Joseph, who attended Kansas with the Morrises and covered them with the Arizona Republic and therefore is the journalism is journalism's most uh foremost Mark Morris expert laid out how he could identify which one was which on Tuesday night. And I've been told that Markeith's hair is thicker and Marcus's face is rounder. And it is true. You can kind of tell the difference between the two. Okay. On the other hand, I say all those people are lying liars. They look the same. Stop pretending you're smarter than us. I'm going to subject these people to a blind taste test, give them two cups of pe Pepsi and they'll insist one has a richer, more, more velvety mouth. <laughs> Uh, point. They have the same tattoos. So they've spoken about their matching tats before and even let fans decide their next joint tattoo. But it doesn't quite hit you uh, 
until you examine them together that holy crap, they have the same tattoos and they really do. The only one that's different that I saw was something about like God lives or something on the middle of their chest, which you wouldn't see with a jersey on. Yeah. Other than that, their their tattoos are identical. That okay. An interesting thing to do. Yeah. However, I sort of lied when I said they have 100% identical tattoos. As a blog dedicated to tracking NBA's player, NBA players' ink notes, there are at least two individual tattoos that are only on one sibling, but both of those are on the player's chest, so neither would be visible during a game. Plus, if they're really committed to the deception, couldn't Marcus just Sharpie in the missing tats before the game? People pointed out to me on Twitter that the Mor- Morrises have different looking nipples. This was also not visible during the game. <laughs> Although with that information in hand, I demand refs do a pregame nip- nipple check for game three. Um, getting a matching tattoo is something people do uh, like siblings, couples and even friends. It just shows you're inked for life or linked for life and that you're uh, at least until you get somebody to ink something different over it. Shout out to Kenyon Martin, whatever, whatever. Um, but I've never heard of people getting two full sleeves and entire chest tattoos together. So this is across their whole body. Let me pull up a picture for you. So you can see it's like, it's a lot, right? It's not yeah, just a like few tattoos. It's their whole, their upper, whole body, upper, upper body. body. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, here's a counterpoint. Markeith is taller. Okay. So Markeith is six foot 10. Marcus is six foot nine. This is incredibly useful for telling them apart if they're standing right next to each other. And still. Yeah. Which they were not doing on Tuesday night, which brings me to my next point. Both of them were not in the same place. Um, the ringer was dedicated to solving this problem. Bill Simmons, who's the leader of the ringer, mm-hmm. suggested they give them a uh, DNA test. He says, are we sure that's not Marcus Mor- Morris? Can we get a halftime DNA test? And another writer, Jason uh, or Jason C says, I'm going to need Marcus Morris to tweet a picture of himself holding a newspaper. Um, unfortunately, I've got to say both of my colleagues have proposed unhelpful solutions. Identical twins share extremely similar DNA that can make tests inconclusive. Right. And even if Marcus posted a picture, how would we know it was Marcus? Yeah. It could just be Markeith, right? Right. Um, so they, um, so all the, and there were tons of jokes. So like people did horrible photoshops of them on the parent trap cover and like a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff. So it was like, it was really happening. Um, but counterpoints, they do have different playing styles. Uh, if there's one thing in life that Marcus and Markeith have differed on, it's the basketball skill sets. Um, although it'd be funny if they just followed each other around on the basketball court, it would make the teams where they played together on really awkward and easy to defend. So they developed slightly different talents because of this. Markeith is taller and likes to play inside. 33.2% of his shots are within five feet of the basket. And he rebounds 6.5 rebounds per game. However, this has... So again, this was 2017. Uh, their stats are nearly identical now. Um, oh, okay. Like almost perfectly identical. Uh, but anyway, uh, while just 12.8% of Marcus's shots are within five feet and he only gets 4.6 boards a game. Uh, meanwhile, Marcus is a better shooter and Joseph uh, notes that he has a quicker and more fluid release. And Marcus took 4.3, uh, 4.5 threes per game. And Markeith that year only took two per game in his whole career. So it was a distinct difference in that style, right? Um, but they're still very, very similar. Both averaged exactly 14 points per game the year, that year. Marcus shot 33.1% from three uh, that season, which exactly matches uh, Markeith's career percentage. And Marcus has a career average of 2.1 assists per 36 minutes, and Markeith averages 2.3 assists per 36 minutes. So almost identical. Wow, that's crazy that they're that close yeah the with player, their skill yeah the player tuesday night did look more like markeith than marcus he grabbed six boards his jumper uh took forever so not fluid and he fouled out which is something that markeith has done 16 times in his career marcus has only done six and it seems likely that uh 
they just overestimated the extent of Marquise's ankle injury um, and that he fully recovered and he played well. But on the other hand, they have the same tattoos. Why would you get the same tattoos if not to commit basket fraud? Um, so Marcus Morris actually on Twitter defended it. He said, I wouldn't play for another team unless I'm on that team. Smooth is playing on his sprained ankle. I didn't expect anything less. And then he goes, the stories are funny, though. <laughs> so that's what he said. Um, so there's one definitive piece of evidence that Markeith actually just healed. And it's that and it took people like being Internet sleuths to figure this out. But for whatever. So like obviously tattoo artists can do their best to copy each other. Yeah, but there is a difference. And it's this and it's very, very obscure. And it took years for this to come out. So this wasn't the article I just read was like during it happening. Mm-hmm. This took bloggers like forever to figure this out. But hang on one second. And you'll see. So you can see um, if you Google the pictures of them together. There's a uh, Chinese symbol on their left shoulders um, and there's two shadows on one brother and one shadow on the other. And it took years for them to figure out that the correct brother was playing that night. The amount of dedication that it took to inspect all of their tattoos and pictures. And figure that one out. Ridiculous. Um, But. Man, I really until I found that out, I thought for years that they actually switched. Yeah, I still think they did. Yeah, I like the way you're going. You, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. They did. They switched. Right. I mean, it would be so easy. So easy. And if they didn't that night, they have. Oh, and, and Marcus is better than Marquise too. Yeah. So it would have been beneficial. For right, sure. yeah. And they really wouldn't ever have to tell anyone. I mean, because here's the thing. So I've watched like YouTube videos of twin switching or whatever, but like they're clearly filming an episode like while you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. And even if like people are filming all the time, if you think something's up and there's a camera in your face, you'll be like, Oh, you guys switched or whatever. Right. But like, it's what I've said all the time where like, um, you know, like whenever Will Ferrell would like go to Staples and just pretend to be an employee or whatever, Mm -hmm. like with the confidence that there's no way that's Will Ferrell, right? Like you would convince yourself Right, of, of course you would. You know, something else. That's what I would think with this. Like, I don't, I don't care if you think you know the twin. If you, if like, this is the most important game of your year, right? Maybe for a lot of those players of your life. Like, you're really going to sit down and be like, nah, you're not the dude, you know? Also, I'm sure some of his teammates, if he did it, knew. And would be totally fine well, with that. Well, they'd have to know because yeah. the other one was still hurt. If he was still hurt. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, even if they didn't, even if they kept it totally secret, what, like the only dudes that would have access or, or with the knowledge of, oh, I know the Morris as well enough to tell them part would absolutely keep the secret yeah, for them. You know like, what I mean? I'm not telling on that. Right. Right. Like, why would you? So, yeah, that, that part I don't get. Um, also, I'm not 100 percent sure that those tattoos are right. I mean, shoot, they could have switched and then just saved switch. Who cares? Right. Yeah, that's true. Why not? Um, but anyway. I thought that was a fun one. Yeah, it's interesting. Cool. Um, No break. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Tell me how to say this this town again. I I haven't seen it in a minute. Velissa? V-I-L-L-I-S-C-A. It's either Velissa or Velisca. And I don't know what nationality is it. It's Iowa. So. Velissa. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So this is the Velissa Axe Murders. So in Velissa, Iowa... There was a family of six. They were um, the Moore family. And it was um, Josiah and Sarah were the parents. And they had four children. So there was Herman M- Montgomery, who was 11. Mary Catherine, who was 10. Arthur Boyd, who was seven. And Paul Vernon, who was five. I don't know why we need middle names. But that was because important. was this in like the 40s? 1912. Ah, okay. 
That was just like the way that people talked about people. All right. So on June 9th of 1912, um, Mary Catherine, which is the daughter, invited over her two friends, Ina May and Lena Gertrude Slinger, so her sisters, um, to sleep over at her house. That night, they all attended their local Presbyterian church and participated in a Children's Day program that Sarah, the mom, had organized. Um, It ended at 9.30 p.m. and the family walked home from the church, which was about a 15-minute walk, so they got home somewhere around 9.45. The next day, um, which was June 10th, around 7 a.m., a neighbor, Mary Peckham, got uh, concerned about the family when they hadn't come out to start their morning chores, which, like, just really, like aggressively points out the changing times because even when we live on land now, so we're farther away, but even when we lived in a neighborhood for our neighbors to notice that we hadn't come out, it would be no, like, never happened. I don't think it would make, well, maybe one. Well, okay. <laughs> but even then it would be weeks. Yeah. It, it would be a week. long period of time. He would have like, I don't want you on. Never mind. Let's go. <laughs> Let's move on. And you know why he would have noticed. Yes. But anyways, this was literally like, the next morning at 7 a.m., which also like the idea of that's crazy. You're not out doing your morning chores at 7 a.m., so we're worried. Um, so she knocked on the door and no one answered. So then she tried to open it, but the door was locked. <laughs> that reminds me of this thing that was like, um, uh, because I wonder if people have always had to deal with folks like anti maskers. And it was like, um, hey, Brian, don't go outside of there. The Mongols are outside. And he goes, oh, but we've been locked in here for weeks. It's like, yeah, because of the Mongols. And then he goes, but they haven't killed anyone in a long time because of the walls, Brian. But my turnips, they won't pick themselves. Brian, the Mongols. But how long will this last forever? Brian, that my turnips, right? It's just really funny to think about that because of the walls, Brian. All right. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so she knocked on the door, no one answered. She tried to open it, but the door was locked. So she called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, who came over, um, but also he knocked and nothing happened, and then he yelled and nothing happened. So he had a spare key, he, um... This dude killed him. Opened the door, (laughs) went inside, um, and she stayed. Um, so... Ross went inside. Uh, Mary stayed outside on the porch. He walked in the guest bedroom and saw, um... Was her name Ida May? I feel like it was... Oh, no. Ina May. I was right the first time. Um, and and Lena, the sisters that I come over, yeah. saw their bodies. Um, so he called back to Mary to call Henry, in quotations, Hank Horton, who was the town's primary peace officer, which I'm assuming was a cop at the time. Um, in the guest bedroom were the two girls. Uh, they'd been bludgeoned to death. When investigating, when he investigated the rest of the house, he found all the other members of the family had also been murdered in the same manner. The murder weapon, which was an axe Josiah owned, was found um, in the guest room with the Stillinger sisters. Uh, The killer used the blade of the axe on Josiah only, while the others, he used the blunt end of the weapon to crush their skulls. Uh, Or she, sorry, person. They had killed the parents first, then moved to the children's room, then back to the parents' room to beat them Further, And the reason that they knew that they had come back is because um, there had been a shoe on the ground next to where they were sleeping that had been filled full of blood and the murderer had knocked it over. So, like, the only way they would have been able to do that is if they came back. Um, Josiah seemed to be the one that was attacked the most aggressively. He'd been hit so many times that her his eyes were just gone. Like, they were just missing. Um, but each of them had been hit close to, like, between 20 and 30 times by the end of the axe, except for Josiah. Um, 
And then after after that, after going back to the parents' room, they that's when they moved to uh, the guest room to kill the girls. Um, they believed everyone was asleep when they died because they all were found. They hadn't struggled at all, and they all were laying in the way they'd been asleep, except for Lena Stillinger, the older girl. Um, she was found lying sideways on the bed with a defensive wound on her arm. Um, also her nightgown had been pushed up to her waist and she wasn't wearing any underwear, which I didn't believe she had been sexually assaulted, but there was no, um, physical evidence of that. Um, the murderer had then used extra clothes of the victims to cover all of the mirrors in the house, as well as the glass door of the entryway. Um, and then also there was on the kitchen table, there was a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water where they probably cleaned their hands. Um, and then next to the axe on the wall, there was, um, a four pound slab of bacon just leaning up next to it. They left there. Wild. I don't, this feels very much like, um, the wet bandits. Wet bandits. Remember on Home Alone? Remember he leaves the water running? Oh, yeah. Which is how they found out that it was them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just feels very much like this is my... I'm going to start a calling card. That's a lot yeah. of bacon, though. And bacon was expensive. Also, yeah, wouldn't you want to eat it? Why would you yeah. leave it there? I think I've heard this story before. You have, because... BuzzFeed? Nope. You know, the girls. That's why we drink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Okay. Okay, uh, they had also covered all of the victims' heads with their clothes, um, probably to minimize blood spatter, so they would, like, or splatter, so they would put it over them and then beat them. Um, it was believed they died somewhere between 12 a.m. and 5 a.m., and when the house was searched, police found two cigarette butts in the attic that were fresh, leading them to believe the attacker waited there until the family fell asleep. Okay, so here's some of the suspects. So the first was a man named Frank F. Jones. He was actually the um, Iowa State Senator. Um, he had owned an implement store, which tell people what an implement is, RJ. Well, so I was saying I don't know the context, but like uh, implements are what you put on the back of your tractor. So I'm guessing it's like a hardware store. Yeah, uh, that before Josiah had worked at, but um, he eventually left opening his own implement store. I think in this issues. day and age, that just means tool store. Okay, tool store. Um, so he had reportedly taken away important business from Jones. Mm. Also, there was rumors that Josiah had had a sexual affair with Jones' daughter-in-law. Oh, snap. But there was no um, proof of this. So there, nothing ever happened with that. That was just like townsfolk people talking about it. So then there was um, William's, William Mansfield, who actually some believed that Jones hired Mansfield to kill them. Um, really, the only reason is because... They just keep wanting to tie the senator to it. It's really yeah. the end of it. Really, the only reason that Mansfield was brought in was because um, around this time, there happened to be a lot of axe murders around um, the Scylla, this... Valiska. No, Valiska. Thank v you. Valiska. Um, that were really similar to the Moore murders. It was believed that Mansfield, uh, it was Mansfield because he was reportedly in the towns the night the murders happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, and he Gross. would like clean that up. And anyway, he would like, back to my yeah, head. he would like travel <laughs> back and forth. Like he never stayed in one place. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the dude. 
In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the homes were covered. Oh, did he leave some bacon? A burning lamp with uh, the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which led them to believe it was Mansfield because he um, his fingerprints were already in the system Mm because he'd been to jail before. Um, They opened an investigation on him in 1916, but he had an alibi for the Moore murder. which apparently he had been somewhere else. But there were witnesses who said that they saw him in the town the morning after it happened. Um, And then, you know, just a little fun fact. Two years later, um, he killed his wife, infant, and also in-laws with an axe. Okay, yeah. It is him, (laughs) but okay, anyway. Um, Next was Henry Lee Moore. It was pretty much the same kind of thing. He killed his mother. Henry's like, why am I even in this? Like, and the senator's like, okay, I might have hired him to think I did it. Yeah, so um, Henry Lee Moore, he killed his mother and grandmother with an axe several months after the Moore's murder, um, and pretty much because of all of them. So this dude, too. So pretty much, yeah, because of all of them. The murders that were being tied together, he was brought up to. I guess. Um, Sam Moyer was also another one. He was Josiah's brother-in-law, who apparently had been heard many times threatening to kill Josiah, but he had an <laughs> alibi for the death of the crime. I'll kill you. That's like you would be my primary suspect for me. <laughs> you know, he's just out there like you son of a. Bitch. I'll kill you one day. <laughs> I'll kill you. Um, and the last one, which may make you rethink some things about Mansfield. Um, is Reverend George Kelly. So, oh, it's him. Um, he was a traveling minister who was in town on the night of the murder. He had been described as peculiar. Um, he had also been known to have um, episodes as a child, is how they described it. Um, he had been accused many times of peeping and several times of asking young girls and women to pose naked for him. So he was just, why he was a reverend who was also known as a creep, I don't really know. Um, so on June 8th, 1912, he, so the day before, he came to the town to uh, teach at the Children's Day service, the one they went mm-hmm. to. And then um, he left town on June 10th between 5 a.m. and 5.30. Um, so he was he was arrested and taken to court. And when he went to court, he confessed to the murders. But because of his mental illness, the jury didn't believe him. I mean, it's still right. probably Mansfield. But. So the following weeks, he started writing letters to police investigators and family of the deceased. Um, it made everyone really suspicious, so they had a private investigator write him back asking for details of the murders. He replied in detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders, but they still doubted it. Um, but actually, in 1917, they actually did arrest Kelly again for the murders and even got a confession from him. But it, but it had been after many hours of interrogation, and he later redacted it. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. So um, it is still considered unsolved, and it is the largest mass murder in Iowa to ever Jeez, go Iowa. Yeah, eight people. Yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. Um, The house was owned like 13 more times between then and now. Um, And then in 1994, a man named Darwin Lynn and his wife bought the house, and they decided to um, get up the cash and restore the house back to its original condition in 1912. So there's a bunch of different stuff changed, like the porch was like fenced in, or like housed in and a bunch of stuff. And so they looked back at pictures and found them and restored it back to what it was. And now, um, oh, so in 1998, they had the house added to the National Register of Historic Places. Hmm. And now you can go um, on tours there and you can either go on a day tour or you can stay overnight. Well, if we ever have the misfortune of having to go to Iowa, that's what we're doing. Yep. Anyways. Cool. It Good was story. totally Mansfield, but you know. It had to be Mansfield. Here's my other theory, though. 
That's a lot of people to kill with only one person waking up. What if it was him and the Reverend? Yeah. I mean, the other thing that surprises me is like in every room there was two people. Yeah. So like, how did you kill one right. person? That's and what then, I'm saying. So maybe it was both of them That's, at the same time. Yeah. Both. And then the Reverend's the one that was creeped on that poor woman. Little girl. I thought she was the oldest one. Lena was the oldest of the two sisters that came to visit. She was a little girl. Ugh. Anyway. Yeah. That's my theory. It's both of them. But why would they work together? That's really weird. They don't seem like they would. <laughs> Birds of a feather, as young me would say, flop together. Is that I, what you said? I used to. I don't That's know. It's precious. Like four or five. Birds of a feather flop together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, hey, imagine. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? It's sad. And but it'd be cool to go get to stay there. Yeah. Um, and of right. course, if you'd like to, Douche Bagans has 100% had as an episode on it. Does he really? Yes, of course oh, he does. We're going to watch it. All right, y'all. Have a good week. Bye.